On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. Installment 11 of the Ackerman Year. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And once again, we have brought an illustrious guest with us. Who's our guest, Kate? Uh, our guest this week is Professor Rebecca Sheehan, who is a longtime uh, friend of mine. I actually met Rebecca the first time when she taught me at Harvard a million years ago, <laughs> and then we've been friends for a long time. But um, yeah, Rebecca is a professor of film studies at um, Cal State Fullerton, uh, and she has two books that I, she said maybe I could mention these quickly just to help uh, spread the word on these excellent books. The first one is called American Avant-Garde. Cinema's Philosophy of the In-Between, which is a fascinating book, and Rebecca talks about people close to my heart, like Cavell and Wittgenstein and Emerson, which is great, uh, alongside discussions of the American avant-garde uh, in filmmaking. And uh, she also has another book, which may be relevant for people interested in Ackerman and these kind of questions, which is a co-edited collection called Border Cinema, Reimagining Identity Through Aesthetics. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to hear Rebecca's thoughts about these kinds of questions as we turn to Ackerman. Rebecca, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to discover Ackerman? Like maybe what, what an early film of hers you saw or like what your relationship has been to her work over the years? Mm, interesting. I, I, you know, I don't even remember when I first encountered Ackerman. I feel like I've always known her work. Um, but I would say that the most, um, the most in-depth uh, uh, thinking I've done about her work has been in teaching uh, Jean Dealman. Um, and I, and it's interesting because I teach that film to my intro students and I'm always shocked at how well non-majors yeah. do with that film. You know, it's just such an amazing introduction to film studies and how many students remember that film 10 years after they graduate, or they tell me, you know, that that would, that seeing that film, for example, at the Harvard film archive, um, yeah. was one of the, the most memorable experiences of their college careers. So, um, so I think that, that film, probably has the biggest um, resonance within my teaching, within my thinking, though I also have always loved Je Tu Il Elle, um, and, and so I, I have thought about sort of her her other works adjacent to uh, to Jean Dielman, and I think actually thinking of these films, and I, I think captivity and sort of uh, is, is something that is always within her work, and the aesthetics of kind of rendering um, the impossibility of knowing the other fully uh, and 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 also being kind of imprisoned within ourselves is is something that that I, I've been thinking about even more watching these two films which I had not seen actually before I feel like oh, I, okay. watched, I watched La Captive many many years ago but I hadn't I hadn't really remembered it there were a few scenes that that I remembered I had seen it on a big screen fortunately um, but but yeah but I had not seen Almire's Folly actually before before 
this opportunity. So you, Rebecca uh, may remember the paper that I wrote for the class that Rebecca taught me. It was about La Captive and this was like 50, like 12, 13 right. years uh -huh. ago or something. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I yes. was like advocating for it even then. <laughs> yeah. And the sculpture, there is a sculptural scene in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is also like, so, um, evocative of of Scotty's pursuit of Madeline at the beginning of Vertigo. Of I mean, course. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. the moment where she's like kind of, and, and I think actually the sculptural elements of Vertigo and what Marker kind of reflects on in, um, yeah, in, in his kind of, yeah, meditation on Vertigo is, is all kind of packed within that scene in La Captive. Yeah. And now yeah, I do totally. remember that paper, Kate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Good. That's good. Um, nice. Okay. Well, so Simon, do you want me to do a bit of the ground laying for the film or do you want to, how do you want to do this? Well, we should probably take a step back and just say that oh, there right. is a theme today. You're right. Um, there is a we, theme. I feel like some of our themes are more bullshitty than others, <laughs> uh, just in terms of just trying to group things. But today we have a solid, we've got a solid double feature in terms of a very clear thematic grouping that listeners will uh, will actually understand and it will make sense. <laughs> um, and that I think talk to each other in really, really interesting ways. And uh, those two films are, they're both from, uh, they're relatively late in the Ackerman filmography. Um, the first is 2000's La Captive, which adapts Marcel Proust. And the second is 2011's Almir's Folly, which adapts Joseph Conrad. So yes, it's Adaptations Month, folks. Yeah, thinking and talking about adaptation. Although, of course, uh, as with so many things, Ackerman has her own very particular take on what adaptation means, which is mm -hmm. maybe why these films are so fascinating. They're so good. Um, so I think we're going to start with La Captive and then work towards Almer's Folly. Um, so I can say a little bit about La Captive just to get us rolling here. Um, Okay, so let's see. So uh, just to pick up the narrative thread again of Ackerman's career. So after she makes Couch in New York in 1996 um, and really has a terrible time doing that, she she that same year she makes uh, Chantal Ackerman, par Chantal Ackerman um, for Cineaste Notre Temps. And then after that, she kind of steps back for a while. She really doesn't make very much for the next couple of years. Uh, she makes like one short, I think, over 1996. And then maybe 1997 is when she starts to shoot... Uh, starts traveling to shoot uh, material for Sud, uh, which comes out in 1998. And then uh, La Captive, or sorry, Sud is 1999 is when um, and that comes out. And then uh, La Captive comes out in 2000. Um, so this is kind of her coming back to fiction after uh, she had said at the end of Couch in New York that she was not going to make another feature film, that she was done with it. And so this is her kind of stepping back into the limelight here a bit. Um, and also she had, uh, because as Chantal Ackerman was an avid reader, I mean, she really was sort of obsessive reader. She, uh, had been a longtime friend of Proust. She'd even thought about adapting parts of, um, uh, Recherche, uh, which is of course, uh, Remembrance of Things Past is the English title. Uh, she had thought about adapting it as early as right after Jean Dielman, but, um, she says that at the time she had very like rigid ideas about the difference between literature and film. And so she really had given up on the idea that you could adapt that book into film. Um, it was only much later that she came back to it. And so she was sort of paired up with uh, her friend, Eric de Kuyper, who she'd met many, many years ago. Um, she'd been introduced to him, I think, when he was running a television show showing avant-garde cinema uh, on Flemish television, I believe. Um, 
and uh, they stayed good friends. He's a filmmaker and a critic as well. Uh, and they co-wrote this film together. He also worked with her on the um, adaptations of the Isaac Bashevis Singer books, where she wrote these scripts that everyone thinks are fantastic scripts, but they couldn't get the money for it. Um, and so, uh, so they worked together on this, and he has described their process, uh, interestingly. So basically, Ackerman, from the beginning decided that she didn't want to do a more traditional adaptation. And she wrote the first kind of uh, breakdown for the outline of the film, just from her memory of having read the later books uh, in Proust's, what is it, five volume series? Yeah, uh, having read the later books in the series. The main one that is adapted here is called um, Le Prisonnaire, uh, or The Prisoner. Uh, but the story of this character, Albertine, and uh, her relation to the the narrator who's just left unnamed, but sometimes people call him Marcel because of it may be Proust in this sort of autobiographical way. Anyway, the relationship with this woman, Albertine runs over the previous novel and then uh, the final novel as well. And so Ackerman kind of adapts her memory of the whole narrative of Albertine into this sort of very loose way. And then her and Eric worked together on writing it. Although he actually gives her full credit as writer. He says he was sort of more like a kind of, conceptual helper uh, in the process of writing. Um, and I can maybe say a little bit more about the, that as we go, because there's obviously a lot of differences from the novel. Um, but maybe the last thing I'll say here too, just as a, a setup, is that they changed the name, uh, obviously. So while the novel that they're adapting is called La Prisonnaire, there was already a film titled that that came out in 1968, made by Clouseau. Uh, and so they rename it La Captive, which sometimes, apparently the book has sometimes been translated as like as the captive in English, although I don't think it's as common. Um, and arguably it's a, it's a more interesting title, <laughs> I think. Um, but it also kind of signals right from the beginning to like Ackerman's, Ackerman's interest in making a sort of autonomous product. Like Ackerman is very, she's, she's not setting out here to make a kind of like, canonical or what people tend to call like faithful adaptation. But uh, as we will maybe unfold here, I think the critical consensus about this film is that specifically because Ackerman sets out to not try to translate uh, Proust's famous concerns with subjectivity, with sort of states of subjectivity, with memory, with time, experience, all these things, she doesn't set out to translate those into cinema in, in the way you might expect. She sort of really loses a lot of different things. And I can say more about that, or we can talk about it as we go. But critics, I think, tend to think because Ackerman avoids all of that and does her own thing with it, this is maybe actually one of the most successful film adaptations of Purpose, that she really manages to capture sort of the feeling and concern of the book without mimicking it and is more successful as a result. But um, but yeah, I can say a bit more about the novel too, because I, I managed to sort of reread some of the descriptions of it. But Rebecca, had you had you read any of uh, Proust? I mean, I've never read any of the original text. I, I have about 20 years have ago you? when this, when uh, La Captive takes, or when, when it was made actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But, but I did revisit I, I, some passages and I, and I think it is, the observation is very interesting that she is, is getting at something that Proust is doing without kind of mimicking it. Um, and, 
And so I, the feeling of kind of the, the ineffability or unknowability uh, and the limits of kind of uh, a union between two people, which I remember being like, it, when I read it, actually in, in college, I remember just being like, God, this is such a like, you know, adolescent boy, like, you know, <laughs> irrit irritatingly complaining about like not understanding the complexity of women, which is interesting because I think in some ways, La Captive, it gives us that, right? Simone is totally yeah, irritating. Totally. <laughs> he is. And, and he has that kind of irritatingly naive kind of adolescent boy, like nagging. Um, and yet there's also something more complex I think she gets at towards the end in their conversations with each other in the car ride um, to her aunt's house and then to the hotel um, that, that I think do really, you know, touch upon Proust's kind of, you know, more, more sophisticated ideas uh, of, of, you know, this, this impenetrability of the other and, um, and, and this kind of notion that, that his idea of love and her idea of love are just completely opposite. Right? And they're, and they're trying to make each other into themselves, but it's just not working. Right. Um, you know, when, when, when Ariane tells Simone, I, I don't know you and and I love that, you know, I could, yeah. that, that's what makes me love you. And, and, you know, he's, he's sort of like, that's the opposite of what I understand yeah. love to be. And it's like, you know, and the tragedy of that, which I think is something kind of that I remember feeling when I was reading Proust and, and feeling I, I also that I identified with that as a young person in my twenties, having experienced love for the first time and, you know, yeah. uh, feeling, <laughs> feeling almost as if, you know, somebody were reading my own journal and translating it. So I think there is something very true to the spirit of Proust that, uh, that Ackerman is getting at, including the irrit the irritating nature of the narrator it, it captured in Simon. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. She's definitely like taking the piss out of him all the time. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, Simon, um, you'd seen La Captive before, right? La Captive was in the bunch of films that I saw three or four holiday seasons ago when I also saw uh, Golden 80s, Les Années 80 and a couple other things. And um, at the time, it was the one that I, that really... I wouldn't say it didn't resonate with me. I would say it was the one that I found to be the toughest sit um, of the uh, of the bunch, and I wasn't sure why. And uh, I was sort of looking forward to revisiting it now, having seen you know ninety five percent of the rest of the Ackerman filmography a couple of times. I thought I'll bring some new perspective to this. I have to say, I still found it a very tough sit. Really, really tough. I and I don't mean that. To, I don't think it's a bad movie. I don't think it's shoddily constructed or anything like that. I just find the the, the philosophical concerns about um, you know trying to uh, trying to uh, locate the truth of another person and and all that. Um, I do find resonant, and we can keep talking about that in in, in Elmer's Folly. Um, aside and aside to my own aside it's funny that that's also the underlying premise of a romantic comedy which she had just made so which this is sort of that's, like the true, horrific yeah. flip side of but um the movie's depiction of this guy simon not helpfully sort of has the same name as me um <laughs> he's just like the, the just the way he is depicted as having total control 
over you know over over events over the over the the you know the women in his life and sort of the way he he seems to have this strange mastery of of the universe but also this uh, utter petulance is like so resonant with so many actual situations and relationships i have you know heard of or encountered in real life without really much embellishment so this this sort of stylistic dance that the movie does where it's sort of heightened but also very much reflects like real life relationship dynamics that do exist just makes my skin crawl i mean it's an uncomfortable film i mean i think this is like part of its genius like so i mean i should just lay my cards on the table i think like up is is maybe like it's not i don't know if it's my favorite ackerman well i don't know it might be my favorite ackerman film i think it is incredible like i think it is her late masterpiece and i put it up there very much with films like john dealman like i think it is just unreal and i think i think critics who know ackerman's work know this film and really love it i'm not sure it i really don't think it was it's been taken up by the kind of broader public in the same way i mean people still tend to know primarily the 70s material the most but i actually think this is like it's such an incredible primer for Ackerman's work. And we haven't really described the plot yet, so maybe I can just give a kind of breakdown of what the film is more broadly about. Um, and then we can sort of dig into the different aspects of it. But Yeah, because um, I, okay. I actually, I have some questions about the plot. I watched ah. it, and, and then I, I actually read plot summaries because I was not sure what was happening on in certain instances, and I think there's some yeah. ambiguity, which which is interesting plot wise, especially yeah. when it comes to Ariane's um, either bisexuality, homosociality, or homosexuality. Anyway, yes, but Kate, give us a plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll try because it's like it's difficult too because you have to compare it with the novel uh, in a certain sense. I do think that this film, and I will say, like, I didn't know really anything about the plot of the novel the first bunch of times I've seen I'd seen the film. It was really only this time that I sat down and like worked my way through descriptions of uh, Proust's epically long novel to contrast and it does bring a very different layer to the film if you know the Proust but I also think you're able to see things in the film uh, as someone who doesn't know Proust that I think people who know Proust miss in the film that I think Ackerman is doing so I think Ackerman I think it works very much for both sides all just to say you don't have to have read this massively long novel to get anything out of this film Um, okay but the basic plot follows this character of Simone played by um uh, Stanislas Merhar, who works here with Ackerman for the first time. He'll come back in Elmer's Folly. Uh, and he plays this wealthy young man. First, you have to say that the film is not set in any exact time. So it seems contemporary, like it's basically contemporary, but Ackerman is adding all of these sort of weird layers to kind of mess with that. You know, the book is set uh, the kind of turn of the century, like the Belle Epoque period. Um, and the film is set presumably in the current moment, but because she just keeps so many structures from the book, it feels very out of time. Like, for example, Simon doesn't work. He lives in this, um, what's I don't know which around these moment it is, but this like incredible Parisian apartment that very much signals like kind of the turn of the century. Uh, he doesn't work, he maybe writes, but he's sort of just supposed to be a kind of like, you know, child of the upper class, like an intellectual. Um, he, lives he has with a his staff. Grandmother. Yeah, he has a staff. He, he lives with his grandmother in this apartment. Um, and right at the beginning of this film, he is sort of engaged in this 
a kind of affair with a young woman named Ariane, who in the book is named Albertine. And there's a lot of discussion about why Ackerman changes the names, right? It's like part of it may be that, again, she's kind of signaling the difference of her text from the original text. But I've also seen like people point out, I think it's Marion Schmidt points out that um, the name that Ackerman gives uh, Albertine here, Ariane, in French means like nothing. It means like you know, of nothing to nothing, which is interesting. And then changing it to the name Simon, like, because in the book, he, he's not named or he's named something else. Um, changing his name to Simon uh, in the novel, Albertine's last name is Simone. So here she gives uh, like Albertine's last name to Simon as the first name. So it's Ackerman already is like kind of playing with these lines of like gender and who is who. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But so anyway, back to the plot, the, um, so Simon is involved in this kind of affair with Ariane, who lives with him. And in the film, it's left very unclear what Ariane's kind of wider status is. In the novel, it's clear that she is from a kind of lower socioeconomic background. She doesn't have um, like family support and money. She has a, an aunt, but that's it. Um, and so there is some, my understanding is in the novel, there's some implication that Ariane stays or Albertine stays with him uh, because of kind of economic necessity. But Ackerman pointedly removes that from the film, which I think is interesting and we can talk about why or what that does. Um, but over the course of the film, basically what happens is that even already right from the beginning, but it just gets worse and worse. Simon is uh, jealous of Ariane. Like he is sort of obsessively trying to, um, to know everything that she is doing, everything that she thinks, everything that she wants. Simon is trying to, he always wants to interrogate her. He always sort of wants to be in her mind and kind of be her maybe, or just control her, or it's all very kind of mucky and unclear exactly what's going on here. Um, and then there's a lot more to say about the oddities of their relationship, which we can do, but basically over the course of the film, um, he, the obsession kind of continues to drive Simon and it builds to a crescendo and uh, they first Simon breaks up with her, but then he changes his mind and says, let's get together again. And they end up on a kind of trip outside of Paris. Uh, and I don't know, do we, I don't know if we should, we, maybe we can come back to the ending. Let's, we could build up to the ending cause it's important, but uh, okay. But what do people, I have thought, I have a million thoughts obviously, but what do people, does anybody want to respond to any of that? I think I, I like um, the background on the names. I wasn't aware of that. And I like Ariane coming from a two nothing Ariane in French. Um, I also though think, I mean, that exchangeability is so key to what's happening with these characters. You know, throughout watching this, I, I'm wondering to myself, who is captive to whom, right? Exactly. Because he's completely her slave on some level, but he also keeps her in captivity, like, like almost, on at some point it feels like she's like a menagerie animal that he remember when he invites his friend over and he doesn't want his friend seeing her and and at that point in the film it it it's not even clear whether she exists i mean to me i just kept wondering is this a woman is this woman a figment of his imagination because we uh, what ackerman does brilliantly with a lot of the cinematography is you know we'll hear her voice but we won't see her so the entire conversation that they have in the bathroom where, you know, he's asking her to do things and she's responding and you think, you know, he's the one in the bathtub. 
um, and he's he's asking her as if she's in a bathtub, um, and it turns out she's on the other side of this uh, this frosted glass, but we don't know that at first, right? So it's yeah. it's just a beautiful kind of way in which uh, Ackerman kind of makes us wonder whether this this person exists or or is actually just a figment of his imagination, which becomes kind of the major. Uh, question throughout the film right is how much he how much he knows the tree the real Ariane how much we know the real Ariane versus how much we know a fiction that he's created about her um but yeah so I think that interchangeability of names is very interesting um yeah yeah this idea that really and even in that scene in the bathtub scene which is like an incredible scene and it's they use it as the poster for the film um it, presumably there's two bathtubs like kind right. of side by They're side in this giant bathroom Bizarre. with yeah. a frosted glass pane in the middle of it and um, at one point like towards the end of this sequence Simon gets up and Ariane is on the other side of the glass and she's sort of moving around and Simon moves his body to like presumably maybe kind of be close to her like want to touch her through the glass but he also from where the camera is he's also sort of covering her physically so that we can't see her behind oh, him and point. it kind of is this yeah. like you know, um, what's it called? A, a figure for something that happens throughout the film, which is this idea that the more he and the film try to know Ariane, the more it projects onto her, the more it covers her, the more she escapes and the more she disappears on the other side. Right. Um, and we, we can kind of talk about that, but cause it's so good. Um, but then also just the, something you made me think of before Rebecca, the, uh, Oh, I lost it. I don't know. The figment of his imagination. I had other things I was going to say, but we'll come back to them. I have a million thoughts. But Simon, did you want to jump in there? Well, just for the listener at home who maybe hasn't seen this movie yet, as you, as Kate was giving you that plot description, what you might not understand is that Simon is in basically every frame of this movie. Yes. Almost. Yeah. He is probably... I. I off the top of my head, he might be the most present man in a Chantal Ackerman movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. That's a really um, good point, Simon. And, and that also irritatingly makes us sort of a, a part of his narrative point of view, which exactly. I, I just don't even want to be a part of. Yes. <laughs> well, and, you're, and I think you've just hit the nail on the head of why I, I find the movie so difficult to watch is because Simon is so present. And com- like, not only does he command these these people and he has this whole you know bourgeois frictionless bourgeois life where he's able to do this but he's also like literally physically there all the time and he's so pouty and demanding and which is totally accurate for you know this you know the 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 the, the, the sort of um you know petulant misogynist presence but it's almost like too effective to the point where i personally get derailed by how much i hate this guy where like my (laughs) and you can't escape him (laughs) no i can't and like my my own critical and aesthetic like sensibilities are not accessible in the same way like every once in a while i will get a moment to just enjoy ackerman's camera like um you know when we get the those um that that incredible shot of uh, of trees at night that we where cameras pointing straight up at, uh, during their night drive in the canopy beautiful or the um or the tour of the sex workers all in red mm, oh yeah incredible yes. sequence that's great um there is one there's one that, and some of the early scenes of just with where Sima is blessedly not talking where he's just following her or uh, Ariane or one of the other women around on foot and the music has this, and those and those are like straight up De Palma Hitchcock, yeah, like, they're hundred like, percent like Hitchcock, fl- yeah, flavor, sure. where, especially with the music, and it's like, mm, cin- that cinema baby, yeah. But then Simon <laughs> opens his mouth, and then I just, 
I struggle to get back into the Ackerman zone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, yeah, it's great that it's true that, that the Scotty Madeline thing, right. It, it plays so well with that because it, because Scotty is of course shaping, you know, Judy into Madeline, right. Towards the end of Vertigo. And, and so evoking that, that very misogynistic sort of Hitchcock trope is, is so great in those, in that opening scene where it's, it, it's mimicking the opening scene of Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. You have, yeah, you have, um, uh, what's his name, Simon, following Ariane around Paris in these kind of lengthy takes where you see him driving and he follows her. And these sequences right from the beginning are so creepy and unnerving. And like the music that's playing over them is Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, which is the theme that returns throughout the film. And you have this real sense of like foreboding, especially in those kind of early moments when he's following her around Paris. The streets seem kind of creepily empty in Paris, especially because Paris is filled with a million people all the time. It, the streets are kind of creepily empty or when they're not, they're primarily women. Like there's sort of the, the people that he sees are women. It's like he often feels like the only man in a kind of street scene and it's like anyway we're gonna say more about that this like his his these moments where he's following her because they're they're amazing Uh, and i also think i mean it's important to point out that at the beginning we don't know what his relationship is to this exactly we actually we don't know that they even know each other i mean you the opening right is him watching this sort of home movie of her of these these girls frolicking on the normandy coast having a great time and then he pauses it Right, on her image, it says, I want you, um, which is so creepy. And so it, it begins as kind of a stalker film, right? And then she be- she is the woman who he's following around Paris, but we have no idea that she's his girlfriend, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it sets it off very much from this position of, of Simon as the kind of voyeur. Simon, his uh, investment in the relationship is built on this sense of distance, this ability to look at her from outside, to watch her from afar. And the, the film that Rebecca mentions at the beginning is like an incredible sequence. And that is maybe like a very pure example of Ackerman taking something from the novel and translating it into a kind of very different sort of cinematic frame. So in the, I believe it's the end of the book that comes just before The Prisoner, is where Simon meets uh, Ariane and he he meets her well he meets her when she's very young as a like a young woman and then he meets her again in this beach town uh, and she's with a group of like the film calls them like little girl or the book calls them little girls I believe but I think they're supposed to be kind of like early 20s late teens early 20s uh, and so she's with all of her female friends and this is sort of something that catches the narrator's uh, gaze and this is sort of the image that he's always left with of his meeting of Ariane as her on this beach and Ackerman takes it and translates it into a whole movie and he and has him watching it in his private bedroom right and it's unclear if like he shot this film or who would have shot this film but he just watches it like on a loop he like restarts it he goes back over scene so he can get close to Ariane via the image at a certain point when he slows it down and her face is on the screen he moves into our frame and kind of tries to again like put himself into the image with her and at the same moment she turns away from the camera and moves towards the ocean which is this like incredible prefiguring of what's going to come later but um anyway so these ideas of like distance and voyeurism were there right from the beginning and I also, I think, I think there's an interesting intersection here, though, the more I think about it, uh, between In Search of Lost Time, 
memory, cinema, cinema's apparatus and photography, which is also what Vertigo is sort of self-reflexively getting at with, uh, with, with, with appealing to the Pygmalion myth, which was incredibly popular when cinema was invented, right? At the, at the turn of the century, there were all of these like Pygmalion and Galatea films coming out. And so this, this, it, it does seem that this kind of mythos of like trying to capture time, but also like trying to capture someone who is uncapturable, right? Whose spirit is, is, you know, it, it, ineffable and, and ultimately going to be unknown to you. Um, and having this, this desire for possession, which is sort of part and parcel of the cinematic medium, right? Or it's like part of the zeitgeist of photography and cinema is super interesting. It, that, so I, I think you're right that her translation of that moment from um, uh, In Search of Lost Time and the Albertine sections, like to the early film is super fascinating. No, no, it's a, no, that's great. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you just no, made me think great. of that. Um, in response to Simon's point from earlier about like the discomfort that you feel, or just even the annoyance that, that you feel having to sort of be subject to the character of Simon all the time. I mean, I think there's a few different things you could say about that, but I do think it's important to kind of understand that even as Ackerman is... I, I don't know, kind of like diminishing this character of the narrator who, you know, I mean, in certain kind of histories of modernist thought could be sort of put up as this kind of like incredible figure, right? This echo of Proust, who is this genius of sort of modernism. And here Ackerman is like, no, he's a whiny <laughs> little boy who just is sort of demanding things he can't have. Um, there's that side of it. But then on the other hand, I think Ackerman deeply identifies with the character of Simon. Like, I don't, I think this is, again, the kind of Hitchcock thing where, you know, so famously in a lot of Hitchcock's films, but maybe particularly in Marnie is the most obvious one, but it's there in Vertigo too. Hitchcock kind of famously alternates between identifying with the the female character and the male character, right? And, you know, Lacanians and like psychoanalysis has really picked this up because there's a kind of position in psychoanalysis that's like one of the neurotic positions is this inability to determine whether, like to this, this anxiety about knowing whether you're female or male and like what that means in the kind of psychoanalytic framework. But Ackerman, I think here, it's, it's not so much necessarily this question of like female male. It's more that for her, she alternates between the poles. And I've said this on the podcast a few times, but she alternates between the poles of feeling this absolute pull of what, you know, Cavell calls skepticism, this like desperate desire to know what is going on with yeah like in the world to know what is going on in another person this feeling of exclusion or ghostliness or a kind of haunting or like a, a failed ability to be in the world because you feel like you can't know alienation exactly because you feel like you can't or know what's alienation going on with else. but that's that's yeah. only one half of it for mm -hmm. Ackerman right the other half of it is that she there's very much the identification with the Ariane character which is this need to flee the kind of obsessive intrusion of the other person, right? Kind of figured in the the, the narrative of the overbearing mother, as you, you often hear from uh, either Ackerman's biography or kind of the psychoanalytic thing, whatever. But so, so Ackerman is kind of holding these two poles in tension. But I feel like what's fascinating is that the first couple of times you watch this movie, Simon is incredibly present, right? Like he is the main figure. But the more you watch the film, the more I think you realize like how incredible it is that Ackerman creates this figure of Ariane who is so at first you can read her very much as passive like you can read her as compliant and she sort of puts up with Simon and she uh you know like he'll say like well where did you go last Tuesday and you said that you did this and you didn't do that but you said this and Ariane will be like oh did I 
well, I guess I did. Like she just is sort of like perpetually kind of going along with it in this way where she seems largely unruffled. I think you see her get ruffled like once by Simon in the whole middle part of the film. Um, but anyway, so she seems very compliant. But the more you watch it, the more you realize that she, I don't know, that she has this existence where she is free from Simon. Like she just sort of lives in this kind of other space that is beyond the purview of the film exactly. Although the, the Ackerman does very good, I think does incredible work, like hinting these things to us without making it clear that Ariane has this like whole other existence that she, she gets enjoyment from the relationship with Simon specifically because she's able to kind of like elude him. And I think this is one thing that I've seen that I have not seen critics talk about at all for all of the reading I've done about this film. I don't think I've ever seen anybody mention this, but to me in the first half of the film where Simon is following Ariane around Paris streets around all of these different things, Ackerman fairly to me makes it very clear that Ariane knows exactly what is going on and that she is very aware of her role in this relationship with Simon, where the kind of nature of their relationship revolves around the fact that he wants her and that her part in this relationship is to perform the escape from him. And what I mean is that like when they'll be walking around on these streets, like Simon will be following her he'll only be like six feet behind Ariane, right? Like she, the idea that she wouldn't know she's being followed perpetually by him is crazy. <laughs> Madeline also knew, right, that Scotty was following her. That's absolutely a kind of key right, echo, right? right? Is that this uh -huh. idea that Ariane yeah. like knows what is happening. And you can read that in a couple of different ways. Like I've seen critics read some of those early scenes where Simon is following um, Ariane around as Simon's kind of dream or like that this is a sort of this kind of expressionistic state where you're not sure what is real and you're not sure what is Simon's kind of fantasy or desire, this like fantasy of following her. But I think it, it sort of doesn't matter. I think the, the, the ultimate point where you know that Ariane is very much in control of her relationship to Simon has to do with their quote unquote sexual encounters, which are like cuckoo bananas. <laughs> are like amazing so um i like I, i'd be interested to hear what people thought about those like i have i have things to say about that but uh simon like what did you how did you make the sense of those well i did break down <laughs> let her sleep <laughs> with several exclamation marks. but do you think she's really sleeping like this uh, is the so question do you think she's really asleep <laughs> no i don't but still it's just the uh, the optics are bad <laughs> I want to be extra clear to the listeners at home. Like when I when I knock this movie, I'm not really knocking the movie. I'm actually I'm what I'm what I'm trying to express is my my own dis personal discomfort with the viewing experience of the movie, which is probably generated yeah. by its effectiveness. Which I, I I do not and I and just to like to I to check my reaction. I've al I've also like scanned Letterbox and other places, uh, not to. Uh, nick anyone's talking points which i hope i'm not accidentally doing uh but just to see if uh if such reactions as mine are usual and they are not um so you know take that with with uh for whatever it's worth yeah i mean i i think it's interesting though that i mean I, the more i think about this you know we I, I liked your observation simon that we that that simon is present in every frame <laughs> practically of the entire film right and and we are in his narrative point of view and yet i don't know if this is because i'm a woman or because or or if every spectator would have this this uh reaction having seen the film 
I understand her yes, yeah. far more than I understand him. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's because we get almost a full picture of what she's hiding and why from him. Whereas I yeah. don't really understand anything about his life, right? I mean, I, he, you know, he lives alone with grandma. I don't really know what he does. There's a hint that he may be a novelist or maybe a writer. We don't know, but but we, we get a really fulsome picture of the life she's trying to hide and disguise from him, right? She's mm -hmm. an aspiring singer. She has a, a group of tight girlfriends who, again, and I, I think this is what turned me off potentially about the film is I really wanted those girlfriends to be a homosocial like kind of club of women, um, but it, but then it turns into a question of of uh, sexual desire that he probes her friends about. You know, is this just something like I'm never going to have a vagina that she wants? Um, and his kind of hysterics <laughs> over that. And I, I found it much more interesting that he found alienating and impenetrable her close relationships with her girlfriends, right? Mm -hmm. Which were not based on any sort of um, sexual exchange or any sort of exchange of sort of, uh, you know, class or money. And I, yeah, I mean, Kate, you mentioned that Ackerman leaves that out. But for me, that was not entirely left out because when you ask, well, why is she staying with him? It's just the only reason that you could possibly fathom because she is bored with him. Although clearly he gives, he lets her go out with Andre. Andre is the friend that she, that he trusts, you know, so he feels like, oh, okay, I am controlling this. But really Andre is like letting her meet whomever she wants. Hélène seems to be a big threat, but, and then he knows that she's lying to him when she comes yeah. home, but at least he knows about the lie, right? And so, but, but this entirely rich world that, we have access to through the lies that she tells him and through his stalking of her, right? Makes, makes I don't know, me as a viewer way more sort of sympathetic to her and sort of yeah. feeling like I'm in her narrative point of view. Whereas I think, you know, cinematically speaking, mm -hmm. we're kind of attached yeah. to him and he's the big unknown, really. I, <laughs> so, I mean, it's speaking again of the swapping of no, roles that's, that's, between the yeah. two. Um, and that, and, and, that's also a kind of cinematic swapping because as you said, Kate, right, um, how, like how the camera kind of treats her, that she's always kind of receding, right? She's never quite in full view, whereas he's always there, as Simon pointed out earlier, right? Like, oh, we're always looking at that dumb face of his, which, you know, that like, he's like really pretty and pouty. Um, and yet, yeah. he to me is the most enigmatic because it really, and, and maybe that's a class commentary too, right? It's like who, what is the motivation, the raison d'etre of these people who have so much money that they don't have to do anything with their days, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, they're, they're following around their girlfriend. I personally found those interactions that Simon has with the women who are not Ariane to be the most vexing because you're constantly left wondering, why don't they all tell this guy to buzz off? Right. Like, Why are they when even he's asking to the, when, when he's which which I think is intentional. Like I don't think it's re, I don't think it's meant to be realistic that these women all like put up with this with this with this guy's like probe with this straight with you know, apparently the straight guys probing questions about being a lesbian. It just doesn't seem like well. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff to, to explain here. So a like what Ackerman is doing here is she's taking things that are in the book and keeping them largely, but removing any of the context that like explains them, which just reveals it as very odd frequently. So for example, in the book, 
I mean, a, I have to admit, I didn't know this. I'm not, I'm not a priest person, so I didn't know this. Like the question of homosexuality sort of in relation to heterosexuality is like a major theme of these books. Like I didn't realize this, but in the original uh, Le Prisonnier in the novel, there is um, uh, the narrator at some point becomes aware that many of the kind of men in his social circle, uh, a good number of them are what the book calls inverts, but are gay homosexuals and are in relationships with each other. And you see this, like there is a kind of um, major plot between a figure named Charlus and a figure named Morel. And they are the kind of, they are a, a male couple. And this sort of like demise of this male couple mirrors the demise of the, of the Albertine narrator's relationship over the course of the novel. And so these themes are there throughout. And also in the book, there are, um, like from very early on, Simon is aware that, uh, or the narrator is aware that this character of Albertine, that women in her social circle are lesbians. That like, this is part of what's going on is that the women that he knows she wants to spend time with, he has, he has seen them act as lesbians. So he knows that this is sort of part of her social scene. Um, and part of that is uh, translated in the film with this character of Leia. And I don't think it, it's, again, it's all left very vague in the film, but you're kind of supposed to know that like the that Leia is, is a well-known lesbian, this like famous sort of theatrical actress that is part of Ariane's extended social circle played by Aurore Clement in this like one scene, a cameo. She just is in the film for like a split second. Um, anyway, so this is sort of part of what's going on, but this idea of like the question about sexuality and Simon interrogating these other women at one point and like that, that maybe part of his obsession is this concern about whether she's cheating on him with other women or whether she's uh, really wants him or not. Again, I think it's fascinating, but I also think it's kind of, it's like one of a number of things that Ackerman is putting in play here to just sort of destabilize what's going on. It's like, it's just that Simon wants to know what cannot be known, right? Like the sexuality stuff is just one face of that. But it's like he wants to be, he wants this experience of being in someone else's skin. And the fact that like she might sleep with other women or whatever is just a way for him to feel that much more enticed or intrigued by what he feels like he can't know, right? Like in that particular instance, it's the projection of like, well, I don't have a female body. Like, you know, when she closes her eyes and we're making love, like, where does she go? Is she thinking about someone else, right? It's that is the sort of like panic inducing thing for him. And he believes, right? And this is again, like Cavell writes about this very eloquently. He believes that if he can just keep pushing Ariane, if he can get answers to his questions, if he can get some kind of proof or evidence of what goes on in her mind, then he will not be panicked and anxious in this way. Then he will have this kind of like grounded experience. He will know that his experience, that he exists, right? Because he can feel, he can feel himself, that he can feel his existence proven in her mind and the fact that she thinks about him, that she cares about him. And until he gets that proof, he is this sort of ghost haunting the world. And I think the film does this incredible job of making that clear of like, as you say, like it's unclear if he's ever really in these scenes. Like you talk about how early on it feels like Ariane is maybe a ghost, but it also feels like Simon is a ghost. Like, who is he? Where is he? Like, who does he speak to? He just sort of floats around the world and, and it's very uncanny. You know, like in one of those early sequences where, um, He's following her in the car and she gets out of the car at one point. Ackerman, there's this incredible cut where I think you see him in the car or whatever and she cuts and now it's like nighttime. So some amount of time has shifted. It's nighttime and he walks in from frame right and it's like a sort of against a wall. He walks in from frame right and the music picks up and 
it's like he's gliding through the space. You have no idea what the space is. You have no idea where he's gone. It's just very like discombobulating. And so I think, I don't know, there's a lot of amazing stuff there. Um, and we still haven't really talked about what's going on with the like when they sleep together, but let's, but let's come back to, the, to that. I was going to touch on what I think is, I mean, him, him wanting to be sort of his, his wanting to be present in a way that is acknowledged by her in her life and loved is so interesting because you realize throughout this that she tells him these uh, edited uh, versions of what she's done. She has curated and kind of edited her, the stories that she's telling him about her past and her relationships and what she does every day to suit what he wants to hear, which is kind of an interesting act of love, right? And and I thought that was an interesting kind of I, I, one that I could relate to a, an aspect of this film, the, the kind of white lie that you tell somebody because they don't want to hear, because, you know, it, it, being with Hélène apparently upsets him. So she's not going to tell him about being with Hélène. She's going to tell. And if he points out, well, were you with, oh, yes, I guess I was. I forgot. Right. But but the, this kind of um, but it gets also to this this uh, notion of translation and adaptation, which both, you know, both of these films are adaptations of novels. And I thought it was interesting what you said, Kate, about her not believing that novels could kind of be adequately translated to the screen, because because what we're seeing between these two characters are intricate acts of translation, right, as well. Um, and particularly the ways that that uh, Alian is, is translating her experience for him and sort of editing out what she knows, what she knows because she understands him, because she knows him on a level that he won't acknowledge, right? Um, what she knows he can't tolerate. So I, I, yeah, this this kind of two ships passing in the night um, quality to these characters, where he can't even see the the real kind of act of love and knowing that she has of him, right? Um, yeah, fascinating. Well, yeah, at 100% right. I mean, even this idea that, like, she she does spend time with him. And, and it's easy to not catch it. But in the early part of the film, there's at least two, if not three or four instances where... Um, where she, where Ariane and Andre invite him to come with them. Like they invite him to come out to do things with him, with her. And they, and he always says, no, I can't. I have to stay home and read or the pollen is too bad or the, well, this, but that's exactly it. That's because that's the relationship he wants, right? This is, and Cavell actually, I should say this, Cavell actually wrote about La Captive briefly in um, one of his later books. Like I talk about it in an article. Yeah. He compared, he talks about it in relation to the Cucor film Gaslight. And he focuses much more on Gaslight than he does like Captive. But like the theme of one of the article of that article is like this, um, that one of the ways in which a sort of uh, skeptical relation to another person takes shape is through this desire for surveillance, like through this idea that if you can't, that, that you would replace sort of being able to know, quote unquote, what goes on inside someone's mind, um, that you would replace that with the desire to know everything about them, this like totalizing surveillance. But then of course, if it's totalizing surveillance, you can't be in what is being surveilled with that person. You have to be this sort of like external body that's outside to gain this vantage of like total objectivity on what's happening, right? So that's why there's this like fetishizing of the kind of surveillance perspective, I think, for Simon. 
And in the in the scene that you just referenced, there's also the the preference for being there without being there, right? Um, you know, so so standing outside, but also doing that instead of hearing her experience about it later and having to know her through her own kind of you know memories translation of what happened, which he doesn't trust for all of these different reasons, right? But that's also part of knowing and loving someone, right? <laughs> is um uh is is relating to their experience through their subjectivity whereas he i mean you're right he could go with them and be present in you know in 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 neither in in you know in real life in real time right and you know being acknowledged and instead he's standing outside not being um seen by them but he's he's live to the event rather than hearing about it later so yeah yeah it's really i mean it's uh-huh. it, like it's just again part of this the skeptical dynamic this idea that like what what drives that skeptical dynamic that what drives this belief that you could know something about everyone it like it, it is grounded in this total devaluation of what you're talking about the subjective relationship with another person right like in so much of the kind of western mindset like historically the subjective is is seen as the devalued version of the objective right like the objective is this pure thing and the subjective is this false like fake partial thing um but that's really only one way of thinking about knowledge right like it's only one framework like if you devalue the subjective this is Kevill's point if you devalue the subjective you lose all of the things that make life happen like that make a relationship possible a relationship has to exist in this exchange of you know, necessarily kind of partial because it's grounded in time. It's grounded in space. Like humans live in space and time. We can't say everything. We can't, we can't describe, like, for example, Ariane, Simon implies that Ariane is keeping things from him. And this is what makes him crazy that she's lying or that whatever. Um, And there is some hints of that a little bit, but really what makes Simon crazy and what Ariane I think knows and what you get towards the end in their conversation in the convertible is, is Ariane understands no one person can tell another person everything that they've thought because it just, that's not how thought works. That's not how human beings Or that work. they experience. That's how film works, but it's not how thought works. Exactly. Right? Right? Like you just, you cannot um, but- do this. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, I mean, when you think about like, you know, would you rather watch your beloved on a beach watching the sunset or would you rather hear about, hear about that sunset from your beloved? Right. Um, you know, the, the, the subjectivity of the quality of that experience, right. Is, is what is being devalued and saying, no, I would rather, right. Have this objective image, this objective image, you know, you have no sort of way of getting at what they're experiencing or what they're thinking or feeling in that moment. Um, but well, and, yeah, and this, and it also other. that also brings up the kind of like fascinating, um, like yet another echo with this idea I mentioned at the beginning about how Ackerman wants to sort of like do away with a lot of the um, kind of frames that you get in Proust, the sort of literary devices that you get in Proust, and think about them differently in relation to cinema, because famously, right, Proust is associated with the idea of a sort of modernist. Um, literature as a kind of as thinking about stream of consciousness as about the written word as the ultimate medium to uh, represent thought right to represent interiority right that you can describe what one character is thinking and then you can describe what another character is thinking and you can describe the sort of movement between them in a way that you simply can't do in film unless you import or use a voiceover narration which Ackerman strictly rejects here right I mean this is maybe one of the most radical and yet she finds another way of doing that that's it yeah I mean that's because as we're saying right we 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 
can we move between these characters, right? And we see them almost mirror one another, uh, you know, throughout the film. So, yeah. yeah. Right, is that I think Ackerman accepts that whereas the written word might give you this fantasized, presumably, picture of a kind of access to someone's interiority, film doesn't, right? Film puts you in the position of the voyeur, of someone looking at something from outside of it, right? And this is what the genius, I think, is in equating Simon with the kind of camera, with the projector in the early scene in the film, right? That this is his desired relationship to Ariane, is the ability to kind of capture her as an image that he could have total control over. Um, okay, anyway, the, I want, there's a couple more points that I feel like I, we've been, I've been talking so much, I want to hear what Simon thinks, but... Um, a couple more points I was going to say. So first, uh, Rebecca, when you were saying the thing about how, you know, Ariane, it is a kind of gesture of love of, of her to sort of like edit and try to tell these stories to Simon in a particular kind of way. It's interesting because I was going to say early on when you said like, it's very clear that she's with Simon, she must be with Simon for sort of economic reasons. I think that's true. But I also do think that I wouldn't go so far as to say hmm, that I don't think she cares for Simon. I mean, I think this is it. Is like, if you take that character at face value, like if you give her the trust that Simon doesn't give her, if we give her that trust, then you have to listen to her when she says in the late part of the film, um, I do love you. I do want to be with you. Why are you breaking up with me? Like, I, I'm as honest with you as I can be. I love you. I want to spend time with you, right? Like, we, we, you kind of have to take that at face value because if you don't, you are treating her the way Simon treats her, which is that you know better than she does and that she's really faking and that we can't really believe her. And Whereas for me, I think, I think she does care for Simon. I don't know if it's like deep romantic love because, of course, you know, uh, Ackerman sort of keeps all of this shifting and vague. But she says with her mouth, I love you. And it's like, if you can't take that at face value, what what could you take at face value, you know? So I think that's fascinating. Um, and then, oh, what was I going to say to you? The last thing. Uh, okay, well, uh, whatever. One more point quickly, then I wanna, we can open it up again. But I was just going to say, to be clear, and this will come back in the Conrad discussion as well. Ackerman, we shouldn't, I, I don't want to make it sound like Ackerman is sort of uh, pro-cinema as opposed to literature, that, that she likes one more than the other. For her, part of the necessity of adapting um, books in this very kind of unusual, distinctive way that she does is that for her, if you're trying to like replicate what happens in a novel in film, film will always lose because for her, literature is this kind of like it will win at what literature does. Like literature is literature. And if you try to take that and put it in film, as she says, it's a battle that you will lose right from the outset. And so I think for her, it's always this question of like how to do justice to the, to the literature, like how to treat the literature as this kind of totemic thing, I think for her, well, really radically changing it so that cinema is doing something different. I, anyway, all to say, that's a, <laughs> a larger point, but um, okay. But Simon, we have been talking forever. This is Rebecca and I, we just like get going. We like want to talk a lot with each other. So um, do you have thoughts, things you want to throw in here? Well, when you were talking about um, her sort of ed- providing an editing, an edited version of events as an act of love, I think th- that and those scenes of her describing her love to him, I think those sort of get to the heart of my, maybe my discomfort with the movie, which is like these acts, I think do have a philosophical and metaphorical payload, which are, are very dissectable at the same time. They also rhyme with, you know, the, with, you know, people in like, we can characterize their relationship as an abusive one, right? Like that's not, 
Uh, that's not a controversial statement. He stalks her everywhere, you know, stage manages uh, or tries to stage manage. Obviously, doesn't succeed, but he tries to manage every aspect of her life. Is domineering, uh, etc. Uh, isolates her from social connections, etc. And uh, people who are, you know, stuck or caught in situations like that often do say that they that they love their partners and often do claim they love their partners um in in the mo- like people do return to their abusers and have difficulty decoupling from that so the this long depiction that we have of them breaking of him sort of trying to sort of breaking up with her and then kind of taking it back and all that it has this other level of import that is like i don't know a little bit that is operating in a different way and like hits me in a different way than i think maybe she intends for that and maybe she doesn't but it's it for me kind of it works to it it doesn't it 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 sort of acts in opposite i don't i don't want to say it acts in opposition to the other stuff but it sits strangely with me well, but with do you, the other stuff for some reason that but I do you really like do you really feel so like do you feel like the character of ariane is abused like i think it's one thing to say the character of simon is abusive but i think it's maybe a different question to ask like do you really feel like that's what this film is depicting is ariane is a is an abused character because i don't know if i agree with that like to me i'm not sure it quite goes that far as I was listening to you talking, Simon, I realized that 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 for me the most abusive scene is when he goes into the Odeon and grabs her and jerks her out and very publicly, right? And and it was weird to me though because he presented himself in public in a way that that differs from the way you know how we've seen him act towards her privately. And I also realized that my feelings about that were very different than when I see um, men publicly abuse women, which happens a lot in France, by the way, um, which is that I, 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 I wasn't fully on board with, oh no, he's abusing her because I realized she has the upper hand. She is abusing him in some way, right? That, that all of this, you know, that, that he, as much as he's trying to control everything, as Simon, you were saying earlier, right? He's, he's a man whose means allow him to control everything, right? He tells the driver where to go. He tells the housekeeper what to do, right? But he's not able to control her. And so even if he, he would be physically abusive towards her. There's something that gives her uh, the upper hand societally, right? There's something that's giving her the upper hand that, that we know is this full life, right? That he doesn't have, nor does he have access to. So, um, but I remember, yeah, just being kind of conflicted about the way that I felt about that scene in particular, because it was such a, a gross demonstration of kind of public ab- abuse um, and, and seemed to have been performed for her friends as well mm-hmm. to show her friends right that he controls her um so yeah but it's yeah. complex i mean i i remember feeling like uh, i should be more pissed off at this scene right mm-hmm. or more pissed off at him in this scene yeah to, to try to answer kate's question i don't think the movie presents ariane as abused as like as a victim necessarily but um what we see of simon and the way he the way he not only treats her, but also her friends. And also the, you know, because this is an Ackerman film, we don't have, like, we have to fill in the gaps ourselves. And what we do see is like very much in the playbook of, you know, real life abusive men that I have known or heard about. So like, it was, I guess it's difficult for me not like I, and I don't think that's really like, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily a level Ackerman wants to be playing on necessarily. So it's it is it is coloring my my viewing in a certain way. 
And yet I feel like it's, it's truthful about the, the spectrum of abuse that is real to a, a lot of romantic relationships, right? And, and yes, it is wrong to abuse your spouse or your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, et cetera. But, but I think that there's a, a truth to what, what kind of counts as abuse and who is abusing whom that without kind of, you know, lauding it or without promoting it is, is being really picked apart here in, in similar ways to the way Proust actually picks this apart. Right. But, um, but, but I agree that ethically speaking, you know, that, that, um, that, uh, not being able to take her, I love you at face value and not as a performance to her abuser makes this complicated, um, Simon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because I agree. I think, I, I mean, I think Ackerman is fully aware of, of the fact that she's depicting this relationship with, from this man that is harmful. Like, I think she is absolutely on board with that, that this kind of impulse of his, this total obsession is, is harmful and destructive. And in fact, we should say Ackerman changes the ending of the, the novel and the book, right? Like the, in the novel, Ariane, they do successfully sort of break up. She leaves and stays away from him. He maybe kind of changes his mind, but doesn't, whatever. And like she leaves, she leaves. And then she dies in a riding accident. And Simon hears about it, like from, or uh, the narrator hears about it uh, from other people. I mean, it is a very different ending than what we have in the in the film, which we can maybe come back to, but um, all to say, so this relationship, I think Ackerman is very aware that, that it is destructive. She arguably makes it more destructive in the film than it, than it is in the book, because in the book too, Albertine kind of gains more, she kind of quote, like emancipates herself. Like she becomes more outspoken. She gains more confidence. She sort of builds her social circle over the course of the, the narrative. So she's sort of escaping from Simon, whereas the film shifts that and makes it more and more about Simon kind of like closing in on her uh, in this very particular way. But I also think that Ackerman here is very, she's using this, these kind of means at her disposal in the film, this sort of minimalist expressionist style of the film, which weirdly at this time made me think of like Paul Schrader. Like, I feel like I could see some kind of like echoes between the style that, uh, of La Captive and, and a lot of Schrader's work. Yeah. This sort of minimalist expressionism. Yeah. Right. Um, anyway, that Ackerman's kind of using that in this way where I think her, what she's as interested in how to say this. I think that like for her, the gender dynamics here, this idea that like the man is the obsessive one and the woman is the one who escapes. Again, to me, it feels like yet another kind of, that feels like yet another sort of signifier or feint that Ackerman is playing with, but it isn't the like ultimate ground. I don't think Ackerman really believes in a kind of like battle between the sexes, you know, like as we've seen in her work, like she's often as interested in kind of like the experiences of, of, well, not experience. She's more obviously more interested in experiences of women. But what I mean is like the relationships between men and women are never a kind of fixed thing. You never see in Ackerman's work, this sort of idea that was so popular in the kind of like seventies wave of feminism, which is that like men fundamentally cannot understand the experience of women. And there will always be this divide between the genders. I just don't think Ackerman ascribes to that. And so it's interesting here that she picks up this narrative that is so on the face of it about this kind of, yeah, relationship between quote men on one side and women on the other side. Because for me, I think particularly all the stuff she's doing with the, with the kind of hints of the lesbian stuff and all this, Ackerman is just sort of, she's more interested in the kind of like abstracted or almost metaphysical questions in this film of self and other than she is of man and woman. And so I think for me, that's why it works to think about it as her kind of moving back and forth between the positions of Simon and Ariane as like, and the film moving us both back and forth between those positions, even as we have 
access quote to Simon and no access to Ariane, as Rebecca's pointed out, we're emotionally kind of like with both of them or even more with Ariane. Um, anyway, I just, it's interesting. The men versus women thing here, I think is, is interesting. I don't know. And also this, the stuff about sex, we still haven't talked about this. Like one of the weirdest things about this film is that Simon's way of like having sex with Ariane is that he waits for her to fall asleep and they have all of these kind of like rituals around it like she he has to go to his bedroom first and he has to like he has to call her and say I want you to come now and she comes to the room and then they play some game or like they do whatever and then she as soon as she falls asleep he like it's like for Taj like he rubs himself against her while she you know again the film walks a line where it's not quite clear if she's pretending to be asleep you think she must be but she seems quite asleep um, um, and like, so he'll sort of like, like hump her. And then at a certain point she will wake up and often she will like say something or she'll, or what will be implied when she wakes up is that she's not thinking about him. That like at one point she wakes up and she says Andre or she wakes up and she's like, where am I? And so it plays into his later anxiety about like, you know, what's happening. But the key here is, is that like when he goes to the prostitute lady, we tries to find a prostitute later on to kind of replace Ariane and he asked the prostitute, he asked the sex worker to like feign sleeping and she can't do it or like it doesn't work as well as he wants it to work. Like he's like, this is not the right kind of sleeping. Like I need you to really, <laughs> anyway, it's just, to me, it's interesting. It, it again is like this like amazing. He only gives her one <laughs> shot too, right? He says, can you pretend to be able to sleep? And she tries it and he's like, no, 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 that won't work. And she's like, well, how would you like me to do it? He's like, here, have some yeah, exactly. get out. <laughs> and, and actually dismissing her quickly and paying her is like the nicest thing <laughs> to anyone in the whole film. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um, and he speaks to her, actually, the French he uses is, like, so respectful, actually. He's, you know, like, I, yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. true. He's, like, very respectful to this sex program. Well, but just yeah. to finish this point here, it's like, I, the, for me, what's fascinating about this is that what, what Simon ultimately wants from Ariane, he thinks he wants the ability to kind of know her and be inside her mind or whatever, but what he actually wants from her, what, what actually makes him chase her is the fact that she escapes, right? Is the fact that she sleeps is the fact that she when when he seems to be the closest to her physically is when she is the furthest from him right that's what he really is fascinated with is this thing that escapes him because then he can chase it and it, and it gives a very particular kind of cast to the ending of the film and and for people who haven't seen it, if you don't want to hear the ending, stop here. But um, they end up uh, like Simon, he, he kind of wins her back. He doesn't win her back. He asks her back and she says yes. Although at this point, you can already tell that she feels it seems at this point that when Ariane re -agree agrees to kind of get back with him, that she is less engaged or more nervous or more uncomfortable or something like things seem off in this last section. And, and this is maybe when you get the most um, kind of like unfiltered dialogue from Ariane. This is when, as Rebecca said early on, she starts talking about how like the reason I love you is because I don't know everything about you. And I love that there's a part of you I can't know anything about. And, and they, and then they end up at a kind of seaside hotel and, they're going to have dinner together. And Simon, again, he just can't, he can't stop, right? He keeps pushing her. He keeps needing to ask more questions. He keeps be, who do you think about when you make love? Who do you, it will make me feel closer to you if you tell me. And he keeps pushing, he keeps pushing. And uh, she finally says something like, you know, he wants to invite Andre to come join them. And she says, leave Andre to me. 
leave me. And then she says, I'm going to go for a swim. And it's at night and she goes out to swim in the ocean and he's sort of half watching her from the balcony. And at a certain point he starts screaming her name and you see him run out into the water and it's all dark and you can't see exactly what's going on. It looks like she's maybe struggling in the water. Uh, he maybe rescue, he tries to rescue her. It's unclear. And then you cut to the next morning and you get this incredible shot that's, I don't know, like six, seven minutes long or something. Uh, of it being dawn and he's in a he's in a small like rowboat thing with someone else on the horizon but you, you only kind of realize this as it gets closer he's wrapped in a blanket like shivering and you watch it get closer and closer and closer and kind of finally go underneath the, the camera um i mean yeah i have thoughts about the ending but like what do, what do other people think about the the ending first of all i i I had a feeling she was going to commit suicide. Well, this is it. Yeah. But, um, and I, again, and it, it was something about her insistence that she's going to go swimming. She's going to go swimming. And she, and she's like kind of escaping yeah. his, his like penetrating, like irritating questions after they've, they've sort of come to this understanding and they want to give it another shot. But then he's like violating that understanding again. And she, she keeps saying, I want to go for a swim. I want to go for a swim. And he asks her, okay, we'll all order dinner. And you know, what do you want? And she says, I don't care. And then she just makes some yeah. stuff up. And the, and she in particular says, uh, uh, scrambled eggs and then, you know, salmon and something and then boiled eggs. And he's like, well, with salmon and boiled or sorry, scrambled eggs and boiled eggs. And she says, no, 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 just scrambled, you know, but it's like, she doesn't really care. Yeah. Like she's not, she's not really going to eat. Yeah. Um, so I, I had this feeling that this was a suicide mission, but I think Ackerman leaves it unclear yeah. as to whether she's just like, I need an escape. And she's and and, you know, it's already been sort of planted in the narrative that she likes to yes. swim, right? Because she And she that she's almost, a strong uh, swimmer. That uh, she's a good swimmer. Play almost drowns. Yeah. yeah. She's a good swimmer. She's a strong swimmer. And she likes, and she does this right to, you know, blow yeah. off steam. So, so that's kind of understandable, but, but there's this feeling of like a suicide oh, totally. mission to me that yeah. I was unclear about. And I, I also think though, that final shot is something that, that this film has in common with Almire's Folly in terms of the use of like just extreme, like blackness and darkness so that you barely understand yeah. what's happening. Right. Um, which is brilliant because uh yeah we, we really don't because we hear her screaming yeah. right so there's this implication that he's trying to save her but maybe she's trying to drown and she doesn't yeah. want to be saved right so it, it leaves that tension for me yeah. i don't know yeah i didn't watch it on the best screen either <laughs> like it was too it was very totally black so if you if you saw more than me please do tell <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Simon is it because for me, it, it very much it reads the same way. It reads as a kind of implication of of either suicide or not, or it being unclear, or again, it may be really not mattering because it's like the idea is is that he drives her to it, whether whether she dies by purpose or not. It's mm -hmm. like he drives her to it, right? And but it's also fascinating that like at no point does it really feel like he potentially murdered her either, right? Like it, like it, it's not like he didn't rescue no. her in the water. It's like he really tried. So I, yeah, I don't know. But sorry, Simon, were you going to say something? the conclusiveness of the suicide ending or seeming suicide ending uh, didn't help me with my plot. <laughs> issue, <I guess. laughs> um, so uh, is, is, is my main contribution. Yeah. Well, okay. And I'll say one more thing. And then we probably have to switch to talking about all mirrors falling. I can talk about like up to you forever, but um, the last thing I was going to say, cause I've never come across this reading before, but I found more than one critic this time talking about how uh, once you've seen the whole film and you get to the ending, the, uh, 
that maybe you what the film is telling you is that the opening sequence with Simon looking at her on the video on the the 16 mil film uh, follows what happens in the water that like it's actually this kind of semicircular uh, narrative right that this is this sort of like that he you know he's in the water he kind of escapes under the thing and then he's like back in the space of, of watching her on the screen which I'm not entirely convinced by but I also think it kind of works like I think it sort of makes sense and I think it's um, yeah. Schmid uh, I think it's Schmid makes this point about the film which I thought was really nice which is that the film itself like in trying to figure out how to tr take from the book these concerns about obsession and stuff that see, seem to be so much grounded in interiority, like you, that you would need to be writing about Simon's um, kind of personal feelings in order to talk about obsession and jealousy in the film. That the way Ackerman gets around that is that rather than using voiceover or something, she kind of makes the repetitive structure of obsession and jealousy, the nature of the film. Like she makes it the structure of the film so that you don't, there's no like kind of arcing development. Like it really doesn't feel like there's sort of like psychological change in the characters or something. Like you don't get that. Instead, you just get these kind of like figures and scenes that happen over and over again, right? Like that, that Simon is perpetually like, he interrogates somebody, he interrogates them again, he interrogates them again. And it like really makes you feel this kind of like stasis and torture of uh, this feeling of obsession without it being about like plot or <laughs> narrative development, which I think is kind of genius. And so I do, I do kind of like this idea that like the whole film might be sort of circular in that same kind of way that he just cannot get out of this like never ending looping thing. Yeah, it's like, it's like a horror movie really. Actually, Kate, I was going to say, though, with the repetition, that's also fantastic with Vertigo, right? Yeah. Because all of Vertigo is structured as this kind of repetition and difference and the motif of the spiral yeah. in Vertigo. So I love the kind of Ouroboros um, reading of this, of the opening to this film, right? Being coming after the yeah. ending in some way. Um, but I was also going to say that she uses that repetition a lot in All Myers yes. Folly, too, especially between Nina, Nina and Dane, like they're conversations yes. right it are just yeah. Uh, yeah anyway so maybe we can, yeah we can move the, on the feeling story. of like a, a male character stuck in his <laughs> stuck in his psychosis is a very good way to get into Almir's folly <laughs> So yeah, let's roll right along to our second feature of the day, hopping forward 11 years to Ackerman's uh, last scripted feature. It's called Al Meyer's Folly, and it's an adaptation of a relatively short story by Joseph Conrad. Uh, Kate, how on earth did we get an, uh, a fully funded and produced and released Joseph Conrad adaptation from Chantal Ackerman with a budget that you can watch? Yeah, I don't even... I I have happen? no idea. I mean, the budget was like 3.5 million euro, I believe. So it was, I think, almost certainly one of her higher budgets. Although I think she even just described it as like a reasonable budget for what they were trying to do. It wasn't <laughs> probably wasn't as much as she would have liked. Um, but again, I, I think it was just that she was able to cobble, her and the producers uh, were able to cobble together money from various uh, like 
national government funds again. I think that was a lot of it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think this film was very anticipated at the, at the time uh, because she hadn't made a, a feature fiction film since uh, Demain de Menage, which we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, which is 2004. Um, so it was like seven years since she'd made a, a film. So everyone was sort of really excited about it. I remember when this film came out and was on the festival circuit. And uh, I also sort of remember that it wasn't, uh, it didn't get great reactions. This is like the main thing I remember about it. And the, the early wave of like critical reactions about this film were really mixed. People really didn't like it. Um, I think that's shifted. Uh, I mean, I, I think now you mostly find very positive kind of reviews of the film or people I think have more capaciousness to kind of understand the film as part of a larger set of questions and concerns of Ackermans. Um, and also, uh, well, well, we can say more about this. I think this, I personally find this film a bit more challenging than La Captive in like a few different ways. I think it's incredible and I really enjoyed going back to it because I remember not loving it either when I saw it the first time. Like I remember thinking it was fine, but it really didn't grab me. And it, at the time I remember thinking it felt like Ackerman was sort of using tropes and kind of um, her sort of aesthetic modes uh, in a way that felt like overused or something like she was just repeating herself, rehashing kind of old things, which I don't think now, I actually think the opposite. When you go back to this film now, I actually think Ackerman is trying to push herself in ways that are really interesting and are quite different than a lot of her other work. Um, but yeah, let me just a few more things as background here. So they filmed it in Cambodia, which is standing in for uh, Malaysia or Borneo uh, in the original novel. Uh, it was filmed in 2010. Uh, and interestingly, though you might, you know, imagine from the history of American films being made in Southeast Asia where, you know, like it's uh, difficult or whatever, Ackerman uh, talks about this as one of the best experiences she had on set. Uh, apparently, she spoke of it as a film made in an atmosphere of total joy experienced by everybody involved. Um, apparently, she kind of relaxed her very like strict pre-planning approach to film and it became uh, to fiction film, we should say, and it became much more improvisatory, which is interesting because that likely is a is an effect of the fact that she'd made these documentaries over the last like 10, 15 years where there she really did take a much more uh, kind of open ended approach. And so she brought that onto the set here. And apparently sort of everyone really enjoyed themselves. She says both the actors and the camera were free to move within the basic parameters she set down. Uh, she evoked it as a rare occasion in which filmmaking and life fully interpenetrated a time of laughing, singing, eating, dancing, and drinking. Uh, and I'm taking that from Adrian Martin and Christina Lopez's writing about the film. But anyway, so that was just an interesting thing because you really wouldn't think that watching this film. <laughs> the film is very much a kind of like <laughs> melancholic, uh, like deeply upsetting movie in a lot of ways. And um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's an, an adapted from this uh, novel or novella, I think, by Conrad. Uh, it was one of Conrad's earliest works. Um, and for people who don't know Conrad, he's famously the author of like Heart of Darkness. He's associated very much with writing about uh, the kind of the, the apex of colonialism in the late 1800s. Um, and there's debate about this, right? Like for a long time, he was taken as somebody who sort of was like uncritically kind of documenting colonialism. Critics more recently will argue with that and say, actually, he was very critical of colonialism and whether or not everyone agrees with how he did that, that there's sort of an argument to be made that he's critical of colonialism. So Ackerman sort of picks that up and extends it here, but she also changes, again, a number of things. The book is originally set in the late 1800s at the kind of like apex of the colonial expansion in Southeast Asia from France, um, or sorry, uh, the Netherlands, I believe it's a Dutch, uh, Almere is Dutch in the novel. 
But then in the film, she sets it in maybe the like 1950s. Again, it's it's very unclear. She leaves the temporal period sort of open. But what that does is it changes it from the apex of kind of colonial expansion to the the like um, edge between the collapse of the colonial system and the emergence of independence of various countries. So it's a slightly different kind of framework here. Um, and there's a few other things I can explain as we go along. I will say generally about Elmer's El Folly, I feel like Elmer's Folly works better if you know more about the novel. Whereas I think La Cative works either way. I think here I felt like I was getting much more out of the film when I knew explicitly what she was changing from the story. It works better for me. But I'm interested to hear what your guys' thoughts are about this film. Oh, last thing I should say too, just as a preface, is that this is sort of, you know, Ackerman, uh, maybe for the first or most explicit time, uh, dipping into questions of kind of like post-colonialism, you know, her relationship as like a French, um, a Belgian woman to these histories of colonialism and how they work in her filmmaking in a, in a way that is really interesting. And I think people at the time thought she didn't pull it off, but I think coming back to it now, I'm, I'm more convinced that it's, it's like a really genuinely interesting um, reflection on these questions. But anyway, what did other people think here? Uh, Simon, had you seen it before? I did see it at some point. I'm in fact, outside of film school, it must've been the first Ackerman movie I saw because I have a distinct memory of getting a screener for it in festival season 2011, along with probably 50 other movies. And because I didn't really know how to watch movies at the time, I'm sure I just watched all of the screeners. Basically. I was just so excited to have free movies, you know, <laughs> so I was all oh, free exclusive movies. Great. I just watched them all. And I, I had my only real memory was of watching it and not disliking it. And it was before I really had any thoughts about uh, Ackerman generally. Um, but returning to the movie, I really, really like this movie a lot. Um, I, I think I, I, I think I described it to you as, and I, this is not why I like it, but it is coincidentally, it is also probably the only Chantal Ackerman movie I would ever try to screen for my dad, because I think he would dig the, the setting and like the legible, uh, character motivations and like the slightly more conventional register that this movie is at for the most part, we can get into the ruptures here and there, uh, then compared to most other things I could potentially show him, I think this would be the most successful. But um, yeah, it's also one of the only Ackerman films that I've watched where I feel like it's um, probably not intentionally, but it feels like it's in conversation with a bunch of other movies kind of dipping into the same subject matter, both before and and a lot after um, this. Like It made me think of Lucretia Martel Zama. It made me think about... Uh, made me think about uh, Pacifiction. Ah, oh, so good. Pacifiction is um, so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, other movies about you know, sort of colon, you know, colonial, uh, colonial and post-colonial concerns, and these white men or these white these 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 figures representing some sort of colonial power to varying degrees of uh, of act of how, of how much actual power they have, which we can get into. Um, sort of existing in in this uh, in this state of of uh of of what i mean it varies from from film to film but it definitely seems like like i, I could easily program a day of screenings on theme with Mayer's folly and and to be honest all the movies would be really good because <laughs> they're 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 all they're all pretty good uh but yeah i really enjoyed this i, I think as a as a melding of uh ackerman's style and sort of um and concerns with uh, a pretty legible and like like yeah sort of slightly more conventional narrative that has like intrigue and murder and things that just aren't normally in uh for the most part uh in uh in a Chantal Ackerman movie I think it negotiates that really well 
Yeah. I, for me also, this is such an outlier for Ackerman, um, because of those elements. Um, but I was also thinking, Simon, how, how funny I must've unconsciously been thinking about Zama, but I was also thinking about La Cienega because of just the feeling, the tone of like swampiness. Um, and of course, Martel is making the same, like, you know, post-colonial kind of critique. Um, but, but the tone that she uses in La Cienega and Zama actually reminded me a lot of the, the tone, um, that, that, uh, that Ackerman kind of visually accomplishes over the course of this film and over the character arc, right, of uh, of Gaspar, um, also played by by Stanislas uh, Merer, and, and who, I mean, watching this back to back with La Captive, I mean, he again is playing this character who is just pathetically stuck, you know, so I think like part of the swampiness, right, and he's stuck and he's pissed off and he can't, he can't mobilize himself, like, there is some parallel between, you know, Simon uh, in La Captive and this character for me just in terms of that and also how frustrated I became with him in that in that he he blames his lack of being able to do anything in this world on Lingard right but it's like dude like what first of all what are you doing there like you've made this kind of like disgusting Faustian pack I mean this is like the critique of colonialism right but also like why don't you go get your daughter? Like, why don't, why are you so stuck? <laughs> and, and why do you, why are you able to just like blame everyone else? Um, so yeah, I had, I was, I was frustrated with this film, but, but, but I, I it frustrated in a way that I think it, you know, was intended. Oh, so, yeah, totally. um, yeah, I think it, it, so, okay. So we can give a yeah. bit of an overview I, of the plot here for people who haven't <clears throat> seen it or, are familiar with the book. So it, it basically, um, it opens uh, in a certain time, Ackerman makes it very unclear, uh, with this character of Almayer, played as Stanislaus Meher, who is married to a woman named Zahira, who is Malaysian of Malay descent. Uh, and you eventually piece together that he was kind of like, quote unquote, forced into this marriage by his captain buddy, uh, Captain Lingard, who is another white uh, colonizer male, um, because he, sorry, Lingard's adopted daughter is Zahira. And so Lingard promises him riches, access to gold mines on her family's property or whatever if he marries her. Um, the, marriage, the, the marriage has happened way in the past. It's gone sour, clearly. It never was good in the first place. Uh, and they have a daughter named Nina, who when the film opens is quite young. Um, and they live in this house that Almayer has built on the edge of a river. And I guess in the novel, it's a bit more clear that he built it thinking that the British were going to um, colonize the area and that he would sort of have access to this money that would come from this, but it never materializes. And so he remains as the kind of only white man in this area. None of the locals will trade with him. He's extremely isolated. His wife hates him. And he claims that his daughter is the only thing that he loves, this girl who's like 10 or 11 at the beginning of the movie. It's interesting to me that we never never actually see anything substantiating that. Like Ackerman removes anything that would indicate that Nina actually is close to him, even as a young girl. Um, but when the film opens, this Captain Lingard is, has uh, come back to take Nina away from them to put her in uh, like a white boarding school, basically in the city to like give her a white, white person's education with the idea here being that the Europeans Almayer and Lingard see her as uh, like potentially European. Like they have this idea that she, if she's educated properly, she will sort of like take her place as a proper European. Um, 
and then of course what happens of, of the rest of the film is basically this exploration of like how that is of course not true because she is perceived as as raced by everyone around her and so she becomes this sort of um exile between two worlds like neither the malaysian community she doesn't feel at home in the indigenous community or the malaysian community because she's been exiled into this sort of white world but as we see over the course of this the middle part of the film or we don't even see it we hear like echoes of it we hear it refracted through various other people and things nina is treated horribly at the boarding school um she's sort of made subject to kind of perpetual racism and this figure, a voice that you hear is the kind of Catholic school teacher voice. Um, fascinatingly, is Ackerman. Ackerman takes up the like plays the role of the kind of like racist uh, lecturing school marm. And at one point, she even says like, "Well, Nina, she'll never be a European. She'll never be one of us." And so, so anyway, so this is sort of the the basic part of the plot. And then at a certain point, Nina's removed from the school when Lingard dies. She comes home again. She she hates uh, Almayer, who's gone increasingly crazy. The mother is is maybe crazy, but maybe crazy like a fox. Like she's sort of manipulating things. It's unclear. And um, the uh, and anyway, so she eventually ends up uh, leaving the Almayer's folly, leaving this house again with a young man named Dane who in the novel is like a Balinese prince. He's an anti-colonial fighter. It's very clear the kind of politics of his position. In the movie, a lot of that is taken away and he becomes a sort of like vague rebel. Um, and, and so Nina eventually leaves with him, even though she says very clearly, I don't love him, but it, she just wants to try anything to get away from Almer, who she hates and won't speak to. Uh, anyway, so that's the basic part of the plot, but we haven't kind of started with the most interesting thing here, which is that when the film opens is you get maybe the most radical departure from um, the book for Ackerman is that Ackerman really is interested here in kind of like excavating and building out and centering the character of Nina in a way that's only partially present in the book. In the book, it's it's basically with Almayer, sort of his vantage point through the whole thing. And Ackerman keeps that a little here, but she opens the film with this incredible sequence, which to me is a very clear nod to uh, Brighter Summer Day, the Edward Yang film, um, where you see, you see a man walking into a nightclub on a beach and he's watching a performance on stage and there's a young guy singing and he has four or five women behind him kind of like dancing robotically, listlessly. And finally the man gets up and stabs the guy um, and he dies. And as he dies and falls off screen, the camera kind of moves in on this one woman who we later realize is Nina. We don't know that at the beginning here. It's this character of Nina. And all of the other women stop dancing and flee. But Nina steps forward into the camera and sings uh, this like pitch perfect rendition of a Latin uh, I believe it's like a requiem or a, lit a liturgy. It's a, it's a Mozart a Mozart piece, um, and she's sort of smiling as she sings. But then as it ends, she looks very kind of like haunted and and so this is this like amazing moment, right? Because it's set after the later the end of the film. Like this is or not the end of the film, but it's it's set. This is the end of the plot line here, right? Is what's happening is Nina is has been freed from this man who promised to take her away and make her amazing, but has is now treating her like she's a backup singer in a club. And it, it's all very kind of like unclear and vague here, but it's interesting that Ackerman ends on this question of like, what will happen to Nina now that she is, has quote kind of escaped both this like colonial patriarchal father figure and, and this man who Ackerman has rewritten as a kind of like, again, maybe semi-abusive or like lying at least <laughs> like romantic figure. And it leaves Nina very much in this like place of sort of open-endedness, but also like frighteningness, I guess, at the end of the film, uh, or at the beginning of the film. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It definitely seemed to me like whenever uh, Ackerman is focusing on Nina, especially throughout the first half, like a lot of the plot stuff of the movie is rendered in like relatively, a lot of it is like relatively conventional style, like shot, counter shot, um, characters discuss the motivations of other characters in a, in a legible way that advances the plot. Like they talk about the, uh, Nina's mother not uh, not taking to a Western education, etc. But then when, when it focuses on Nina, as it does in the beginning, and then again strongly about the midway point, the the like literally the shots are longer. I don't think I can prove this with math right now, but it does does seem like she gets the most of the attention of the longer takes until, of course, the very end when it's time to focus on just how pathetic Elmer is. Yeah, I was thinking about that opening scene, Kate. Well, and the fact that it's uh, a scene that happens after the end of the film and it opens with that. So this Ouroboros structure that we were talking about with Black Cup Teeth maybe applies here. But but I, but the fact that she's swaying and she keeps swaying after her husband has been knifed on stage in front of her, and it it gave and and then she starts singing the Mozart that we know she learned in boarding school, right in the in the you know, English speaking boarding school or the white, sorry, it's French, but white boarding school. Um, but, but there, it felt somehow like, okay, like she's, she has used Dane to get out of like Almeyer's world, which to which she would have otherwise been confined. And she's floating on because this is very much like the sea, which it, and that movement matches the opening shot, which is of the waves. Right. Um, and, and I thought that, that at the end of the film, what she said, what she tells her father Almeyer in French, which we're given to believe Dane doesn't understand. Right. Um, when she says, um, I don't know if this guy loves me. Who cares? He's my ticket out, basically. Like, I'm completely indifferent to this. Like, maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't love me yet. Maybe I don't love him yet. But, like, right now, like, he's, you know, this is just my, this is, he's my boat, right? <laughs> like, you're getting me the boat, but, but, like, he's actually my boat. Um, which it was interesting because, you know, I was thinking of that kind of, that same kind of indifference, um, in relation to, um, uh, Alian in, La Captive and this kind of this indifference that leads to a kind of freedom um, and that is like, you know, very utilitarian um, in the context of Nina. But I don't know. I kind of read that opening given, you know, you get that image and you're kind of it's like a question mark. Right. And you kind of have to reframe it after you've seen the film. But um, I thought it was I thought it was hopeful well, yeah. <laughs> given, given what, what how we kind of see her positioned between these two men. Right. Where her I mean, it's, these are her two options. Right. Or, you know, she could have uh, married the, the nephew of the the name, the incredibly rich neighbor who wants to have an arranged marriage with her and basically tells her father, like, you should be thanking me. I mean, she doesn't even have an, a dowry. Right. So we kind of understand her as, you know. The commodity that she is in this well, culture as a yeah. woman, and, and also, and I forgot about um, that, but that's the other part of the the thing where she's at home in neither world is that this idea that she's mixed race makes her kind of of a lower status in the Malaysian society too, right? So this is, yeah, it's like a problem, and it's interesting. One one more tidbit that I had: this is something Ackerman explicitly does not put in the film, which is interesting because it really shifts how you understand what's going on here. If you know this from the novel, is the fact that Almer. Uh, as a character in the novel, has never been to Europe. 
He's he's was born in the Indies and grew up there being kind of told stories about Europe. And so he is this sort of like he he is almost kind of a double of Nina. They are both these like figures who are in between the two worlds, right? The like uh, European imaginary and then the kind of like colonial expansionist imaginary from the European point of view or like, I mean, it's fascinating. And so he is this figure who is a kind of sickness, right? Like he is this, the la folie d'Almer is like the madness of Almer, right? So it's like the, he's this kind of sickness that pr- represents a kind of like, yeah, it's not even the actuality of colonialism. It's like the or sorry, it's not even the actuality of Europe. It's this like dream of Europe that that Europe presents itself as this kind of fantasy to those being colonized. And so it's like he kind of is in this odd position in between. And anyway, this goes some way to explain why he has this fantasy that he's going to get Nina. Like his dream that he thinks he has this dream is to make Nina into this kind of model European that he will then they will both go back to Europe together and live this kind of amazing life in Europe that he's never been to or never seen but he believes all of this kind of you know fantasy about um anyway so that sort of changes some of the frame I think in an, in an interesting actually, way actually I had I had a plot I had a plot point clarification question I thought that Almeyer was under the impression that his daughter had been sent to Paris or London to a boarding school when in actuality, we realize that she's like in Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. Like she's in a major Asian metropolis, Southeast Asian metropolis. I assumed it was Kuala Lumpur. They're obviously speaking French there, but she's not as far away from him as he thought, right? Or or does he know that she's that close? It, that it is unclear to me kind too. Of, I mean, if he doesn't... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting kind of tragedy, right? Because she she sort of blames him for not coming to get her, but you kind of realize that he doesn't think he can get there because he thinks she's in Europe or, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, and whether or not he knows, I think it's important to emphasize like the difference between Al Mayer and maybe some of the other figures of other uh, sort of thematically, hypothetically similar stories is he's he's a middleman. He's just a guy. Like he's just a kind of a loser. Like he's, he's the, a professional simp for this Lingard guy who is not really around and also just kind of, uh, up, up and, uh, up and dies one day in an amazing that sequence, sequence is incredible. By the way. Holy yeah. I think that oh might God. be my favorite scene of the whole movie. It's... I know the bed that's floating on that water. Like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that and his also actual death. Yeah. The the nonchalantness of, of of Lingard's actual death followed by the um followed by the opium hit. Oh, man. No, 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 it's right. it's incredible. Yeah. And I, I was gonna say too, like this this notion of like the filmmakers to come, like it's interesting. Cause, I mean, you you point out the filmmakers, uh, you know, Martel and uh oh my god who made passive fiction sarah uh albert sarah who come later which i hadn't thought of but those were like totally amazing connections but it's also worth pointing out that at this point in ackerman's career she was engaging more like from her own vantage in watching different kind of southeast asian filmmakers so she here to me it's very clear that she's drawing on like simon lang and ho hao shen it's like these are these are very much in play here and like she spoke at the time about like being interested in figures like simon lang and i believe also edward yang too yeah, that image looks so much yes. like an image out of I don't exactly. want to sleep alone. Um, yeah, yeah, it's spot on. Which is also filmed in Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, parts of it are filmed in uh, in Phnom Penh. So because they're in Cambodia, so like that's the city that they're actually in. Right. And I forget which city it is that they're supposed to be near in the novel, but it doesn't matter. Um, 
Anyway, so the, the, yeah, that figure of the bed floating, this is after we see this guy Lingard die, kind of midway through the film. Um, he's being attended to by this other character named Chen, who is a, a, a Malaysian man, presumably, um, who is looking after him. And when he dies, the camera goes up to the ceiling and you see this like incredible vantage of him on this bed floating while Chen sits at the window looking out and uh, in a flooded room. And it, and it very much invokes the kind of like tropes that, that Sai uses of sort of water is this kind of like the space of fluidity this like moving between the kind of like colonial influences like but also like erosion degradation but maybe like freedom and movement and anyway I think Ackerman is very aware of what she's doing there but I was also going to say this character of Chen is kind of crucial because and we haven't talked about him yet by way of getting to that point, I was going to say, it's interesting to me, Simon, that you kind of are are very wanting to focus, frame the film as like more conventional than some of Ackerman's other stuff. Because for me, I don't, I feel like it's, it's actually quite unconventional in a lot of like ways. Like it, I don't know. So for example, this character, she's constantly changing who the kind of quote unquote subjectivity is that we're following. If we're following any subject, like if there's any character that we're following, um, the, the figure, the performance styles are very kind of radically different from one person to another. Like the character, the, the woman who plays Nina, Aurora Martin, is very like blank, like in this maybe sort of not exactly classical Ackerman style because it's a bit, even a bit unusual compared to someone like Delphine Serig, but she's very blank, very kind of like stone faced. Um, and then Stanislaus Marher is doing these like crazy swings in his performance, right? Like he's mumbling and whining and then he's shouting and then he's mumbling and whining and then he's shouting and like, and then you have other people kind of being more standard. So anyway, so there's like all of this variation. There's this incredible use of like expressionist sound throughout the like the sound mixing, the stuff that she's doing. We can come back to that, but the sound is like unbelievable here. Yeah, I, I wrote down the sound in all caps with an exclamation. Yeah, she's point. using the theme from Tristan and Isolde, and I and she must be doing that intentionally. And I was trying to kind of, <clears throat> of course, Tristan and Isolde is about Isolde. I mean, it begins with Isolde being taken to a place she doesn't want to go, right, by a man she doesn't want to be with, right, <laughs> to a man she doesn't want to be with. So I guess like there, there you have like the narrative reference or the operatic reference. I also thought, I mean, the op actually Ca Carmen is referenced in La Captive to an interesting. Kind kind of echoing extent as and, well. And Cozy so Fatuti, we didn't even get to talk about the singing. I love the singing in Le Cup Tea, yeah. but uh, we don't have time. But Yeah, because singing singing in both yeah. of both of these uh films, singing is so important to the to the main female characters, but also the references to opera. Um yeah. Uh and and there's even that that scene where we we can hear Nina, but we can't see her. And then, and then we get some kind of reference point because of, you know, the narrator who's looking through the bars at her. Um, but it's similar to being able to hear, um, uh, Ariane singing, but not be able, being able to see her in the apartment. So it, it, yeah, there seems to be a kind of, yeah, motif of this singing and this kind of both, it, both the caged bird singing, but that, that like, that singing, like escaping the frame of of the of the film being like evocative of this like potential for freedom like within that kind of imprisonment or entrapment which is really i mean she's using it in very similar ways right in both these films yeah mm -hmm. when i describe the movie as more conventional i think what i really mean is like it's not a, a story as elliptically told as something like like Heptive, for example where it's like you say uh, a, a sequence at least to me like it's not like a sequence of of the same sort of 
as the same sort of thing happening with 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 the with characters over and over into an escalating thing. Like it has a narrative with yeah. intrigue and uh, you know a period setting and like things to things to 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 capture a typical I don't know, I don't know what a typical viewer is, but like a modern viewer's attention in a slightly more conventional legible way. Uh, in a, or a slightly, I don't know, for lack of a better term, a, a less art housey way uh, than normal. Which is not to say that it is totally straightforward. Like, it is definitely not totally straightforward at all. I mean, it opens with a rupture right away. I mean, this is so fascinating to me because, like, I feel like I, I, I don't know. It's not that I don't agree, but I feel like they're just they're just equally strange in different ways. Maybe <laughs> like they're just equally unusual. Like, like you know, for example, like the the sequences. For, just to talk about sound again and like the camera stuff that she's doing here. That I think is quite different for her. Um, at one point in the middle of the film, I believe it's right after the sequence Rebecca just talked about there, this amazing scene where this figure of Chen, who is uh, the like servant to um, Lingard, he is in his room in the city. We don't even know what's going on, but he's, he's sitting in his room in the city. And he says, as the only voiceover narrator in this film, which is amazing, Ackerman like gives this film a voiceover narration, but specifically grounds it in the voice of the colonized, like the indigenous people, rather than what it usually is, which is the kind of like white maker, right? Anyway, so um, that's interesting. So he's sitting in his room watching, he's, he tells us that he sees outside his window, Nina at the boarding school. And on the soundtrack, we hear over and over again, these like kind of upsetting interactions between, you know, Ackerman as the Catholic school teacher and Nina and, and Nina's constantly being singled out and being told she's not good enough and she's not doing things right, blah, blah, blah. So you hear that and Chen is sitting there and it clearly is like painting him watching this girl who we later realize he looked after. We, we have to piece all of this together backwards. We realize that he looked after her and the mother when she was growing up. It's painful to him. And so he, he takes out this opium pipe and he's smoking opium. And then all of a sudden the film will cut and we will be in a jungle and a camera will be like floating on a kind of some sort of uh, aquatic thing, like floating on the water and the leaves are sort of moving in front of the camera in this like gentle bouncing way. And then you hear dialogue and it's Nina and Dane speaking to each other in this very repetitive way. And then one of their faces will sort of float by in the jungle and then another one will float by. And, and you're left with this question of like, is this, is this the film like moving to a different time period? Is this like an opium dream of Chen's? Like it's very clearly kind of like, we're never really on solid ground. I feel like with who is doing what and like what is happening and whose vantage we're in. And I don't know. I, I, I mean, I thought that sequence was like incredible. The sequences where Ackerman is filming in the jungle, which by the way, is a totally new thing for her. Like she primarily films in cities or in interiors. And here it's like, she's, exclusively in the kind of like outdoors. Although as many critics point out, it still often feels very like interior or very claustrophobic despite that. But there's some beautiful stuff in here with like the kind of nature filming. There's a sequence with Nina on the front of a boat at like dawn and like it's blue that was like unreal. I was like, this is I, right there. You can see Ackerman's uh, influence from Miami Vice. I was like, this is Ackerman because she, I'm not making this up. She loves Miami Vice. <laughs> that was like a Miami no, Vice no. shot right there. <laughs> That's it's funny that you thought of Miami Vice because I thought I sort of thought of it as her little restaging of the iconic Titanic moment. Kate <laughs> <laughs> okay, the top of the boat with a much smaller that's, boat. That's topical, yeah, that's Simon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was. I I love these sequences too, Kate, and they were reminding me though of the many sequences in La Captive that are also really um, tonally dark, 
like texturally kind of, you know, you can't exactly make out what's happening in them. I mean, for example, the last scene that we were talking about, but there's so much of that going on here, but often in uh, scenes that are filmed in daylight, but under like the shadow of like the jungle, you know, uh, the leaves, um, which is so brilliant. Um, but the, the night when uh, Zane's death is feigned, mm, yeah. um, that whole scene, right. It's just so you're just like, what is going on? And then like, you know, and then you figure it out kind of after, you know, ex post facto, but, but in the moment you're, you're kind of digging sort of in this, um, in this like tonal, like texture, which yeah, is, is brilliant. No, a hundred percent. And like, people have spoken about this kind of the fact that Ackerman will frequently like dramatically underexpose certain images in this film so that you're left like like it's very clear particularly when you're inside the house with Almer who by the way like Nina's off like things are happening and she has she has kind of movement and like not exactly freedom but like she moves <coughs> in the narrative Almer never like he basically never leaves the house he's in that house or he's walking around outside the house like that's his entire position in the film and he often is just sort of sitting in his chair like getting drunk like railing about things and listening to uh, European records and like singing European songs over like trying to project himself over the sounds of indigenous music or Malaysian music that's coming in from outside like he's so sad and pathetic but when he's sitting in this dark room Ackerman will often shoot it in so it's so dark that you can't even really tell where he is in the space or like what's going on in the in the image which is interesting he kind of blends into the environment in a certain kind of way. It's like he can't differentiate himself from it. And I didn't get to say this point about Lack of Tea, but I have to say it now too, because I never noticed this until watching it this time. That like the apartment, particularly in La Captive, is very much uh, like Almer's house here, a kind of like emotional architecture, as Juliana Bruno puts it, right? This idea of like an externalized space that is meant to sort of embody the interior of a character. And in La Captive, you also get Simon's clothing being designed to like match him to the literal walls. When you first see him, he's wearing this like pink sweater that like puts him like he, he like blends into the pink walls and then he throughout he's wearing this like light blue velvet suit which matches the paint in the walls in his room it's like incredible anyway um but yeah so this this idea of Almer here like similarly kind of struggling to escape the, the swamp and the muck of this kind of like yeah colonial <laughs> wasteland that he's in um yeah the uh the it's notable that the first time we see Almer we, we see him introduced by the leg because he's being menaced by flies and he has to swat them away, which to which to, which to me immediately put me in the mind of like a classic Herzog, uh, you know, figure like an Aguirre, right? The like a conquistador in the jungle. Except the main difference is, as Kate says, he does zero adventuring. There's no, there's no glory, even doomed glory. There's none of that going on. It's like it's like Aguirre minus all the adventure and just the drudgery of, of colonialism. Yeah, he's deeply chagrined by any adventure he has. I mean, when they go hunting for Nina, right? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> right. And Sahira has taken her, and, and and those shots are beautiful, by the way. But he's griping the whole time. You know, he's just like, and I hate green. Why is everything green? <laughs> here <laughs> you're just like you're complaining about the colors of the jungle like wow <laughs> i see only hostile green i see only hostile. yes there's something <laughs> talking about that yeah yeah but there's also something like there his almayer is a unique figure to me um even among these movies where like compared to someone like the the, the principal figure in zama who is like so inept 
and like so lost that he becomes like a comical figure almost you i never really have that feeling about almer like he is pathetic and um and tragic in a way that feels like it is in a very different register from a movie like that yeah no totally yeah he uh very much and again i feel like the whole film is kind of operating in this sense of like yeah tragedy like again the tristan and isolde reference works in that regard but then also like the way that you know for example the the song that nina is taught while she's in school that she sings at the end of the film or sorry at the beginning of the film um you know it's like a liturgy it's like this idea that colonialism is a is a project aimed towards death right that like the entire arc of the film is like toward stasis towards uh inability to change towards like the death of the soul you know like that's what the film is and it it doesn't actually end with Almer dying with the way the novel does so in the in the novel after nina finally you know leaves him permanently and says i'm, I'm going off with dan and uh Almer can no longer convince himself that he even has this kind of like one final projected fantasy of this young woman who loves him um he how does it go he like he 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 says that he wants to forget. Like, this is the thing is he kind of, there's the refrain is that he wants to forget, but he feels like he won't be able to, he feels like he's going to remember everything. And so he starts smoking opium more and more. And eventually he burns down his whole house. Like the house gets burned down and he dies. And, but right before he dies, uh, or I think the novel ends with the narrator saying something like, and he was permitted to forget before he died. And so this idea that he's given at least some kind of like freedom from this weight of history that has has driven his entire existence. But Ackerman doesn't do that, right? Ackerman ends her film in a very different way, which is that Nina leaves. uh, That's all the same. And then we get this shot at the end where I think after Almeria said something like, I want to forget, I want to forget, but we see him, he's sitting in this chair and the camera kind of moves in very slowly, but it's, it's, I don't know, the take is like seven minutes long, eight minutes long, something like that. Behind him, you see this unnamed, uh, like servant figure who's Malaysian, who's looked after him through the whole, uh, latter part of the film, um, stand in the back of the shot which i think is easy to forget i think it's easy to treat this shot as like just another one of ackerman's kind of famous frontal like face shots right that you get at the end of john dealman or you get in meetings with anna or whatever um but where you just sit with a face for like an extended period of time and you have to kind of confront this like phenomenological reality of like what does it mean to have to make sense of another person when all you have is the face right like he here he says a few things like he kind of garbly mumbles like various phrases that don't entirely make sense and he's maybe reminiscing about like nina a bit but you're not quite sure anyway you see his face there but behind him now in the shot you have this servant like standing there kind of like watching him sort of being forced to you know his existence is tied to Almir's. like i just find it like a really interesting way that that ackerman is sort of reframing her own over there right it's no longer just the face of the spectator or the face of the white character it's like now there's a third term there right this excluded other who exists to make this seemingly a historical relationship between the self and other possible. Like, I just, I think that's like a genius move. But anyway, all to say, she ends her film with uh, Almer there not permitted to forget, right? Like, we watch him struggle with this pain of what has happened with Nina, with him. Um, you know, he's still stuck in the end. And that's how the film ends, is there's no release of death at the end. Yeah, he's he's not as lucky as, uh, he's not as lucky as our gal from the captive. No, it's true. No freedom. No freedom in any way for him, uh, whether freedom even means death, you know? Yeah. 
I think it's interesting because where I thought it was going to end was where, of course, uh, Nina and Dane take off and there's a kind of like slow shot of him leaving uh, or Almayer kind of leaving the frame. Um, but but and, and he says then, I never had a daughter. I will forget something along the lines of I will forget I had a daughter. And so it's sort of this it almost hints at like the the ending in the in the the novel where he's allowed to forget before dying but then but then it she makes sure that that doesn't happen like you know as we watch him kind of muttering and you know yeah yeah um <clears throat> let's see the, the other kind of point i was going to make here just to bring up some these kind of questions is you know, like critics writing about the film, like, for example, talk about the fact that when Ackerman was uh, writing to fill in the Nina character, like adapting the screenplay, that Ackerman actually draws, uh, there's like this great monologue in the middle of the film that um, Aurora Martin again delivers in this very kind of like, not exactly deadpan, but like really stone faced style, where she's talking about her experience in the uh, boarding school and how like horrible it was and how she never felt good enough and she was always on the outside and then even if she was perfect that they hated her for that too and the food that she had to eat and she was always hungry and but again I'm not doing it justice because you need Ackerman's very particular writing where it feels very like repetitive and like almost playful but in this very kind of morose way um, anyway Ackerman there as critics have pointed out is very clearly drawing on her experience as a Jewish child in a Catholic school that she was sent to when she was young right and like she's filling in in this sort of subjective space of Nina by like drawing on a sort of autobiographical mode. And, and I should add here too that like Ackerman, it's similar to Le Captive in the sense of like she's she's drawing on various films. Like it isn't just the kind of Simon Lang thing or the the other film Simon mentioned. She also apparently spoke in interviews regularly about uh, for this film being very influenced by Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter uh, and Murnau's Taboo as like two films that kind of deal with this question of like two lovers on the run in a jungle and like what that means. And so anyway, so there's all these different references here, but she's drawing on the autobiographical as well. And it's interesting because it brings up this question. Like I've seen, I've seen critics sort of talk very uh, kind of like, like they take it as very unproblematic or something, this idea that, and I'm not saying it needs to be problematic, but I just think it's worth talking about this, this idea that Ackerman is interested in the kind of like, tragedies and after effects of colonialism um, because it again connects with her history of thinking about uh, the Holocaust, about the the experience of being exiled, the kind of like general sort of like global condition of um, of exile and, and kind of historical trauma and pain. Again, I think it's interesting, but I also think it, one should be careful not necessarily like to conflate all of those things as if they are kind of equivalent. And I, I think Ackerman is, you know, I imagine, I, I don't, I think it's one thing to say that she brings in some of her own experience and she can feel like she identifies with these questions. I think it would be another thing to say that she has like transparent understanding of them or something because they're the same, because they're not, right? I mean, this is like, there's a lot of discourse around histories of, colonialism like you have M.A. Cesar famously saying like you know in in Europe in Europe in the West they think about the Holocaust as the kind of like originary historical trauma of the West right like how did this happen how did the Holocaust happen where did it come from in this kind of civilized world and you know his argument is that it comes out of the repressed histories of hundreds of years of genocidal horrifying violence enacted in the colonies right that like that is that is the, the anyway so all to say i just think that there's i think it's interesting to think about these things together but it's also worth being a bit careful about how you 
bring Ackerman into these kind of wider discourses. And I think she's aware of it. I mean, I think this is, she's doing some very interesting things here to kind of like tentatively suss out her own relationship to it. Again, like taking on the voice of being this kind of like racist school teacher is interesting, right? I mean, if you look to like someone like Claire Denis, it's like there's, there's interesting echoes with what Denis does in her, in her filmmaking here too, right? Yeah. I almost brought up Claire Denis earlier, but it, but I just feel like I dropped enough names already. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, is there anything else that we want to kind of get on the, on the table here before we start to wrap up? Uh, I would just say, like, in terms of, uh, you were talking about the, these two films. We've talked about these two films as outliers, and you've talked about them in terms of relative strangeness. I would just say, in terms of my viewing experience of both films, again, probably due to personal stuff, just as a, as, just as a movie to watch, I just personally find uh, Almir's Folly to be just its atmosphere and setting and tone and use of sound, etc. I just find so for the most part, more enveloping and more just inviting as a viewer, just all the night jungle stuff and all the night walking, which is like one of anytime there's a long sequence of someone walking at night in an Ackerman movie, I'm going to be into it. And this has a lot of that. So just as a viewing experience, I just find like, I think I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to revisiting it. Yeah, I think similarly, all of the all of the city scenes um, when when Nina is kicked out of boarding school, there are some really amazing kind of um, city shots, like as she's meandering around, and then of course the opening sequence in that like neon club, which is so Simon Liang as well. When you think about it, um, I think about like uh, oh yeah, I mean just that is so evocative of size work. Um, so yeah, atmospherically, this is just a beautiful. beautiful beautiful film no it it really is and like i don't know i mean I, again i feel like you you want to give ackerman credit here right this was this was her last um scripted feature film i think as simon maybe said earlier this was her last scripted feature film that she made before she died and um it's interesting i think she really is sort of trying to push herself to do different things here you know like like amy tobin talks in art form about this film and she's she sort of notes that like with La Captive and then uh, even more so in Elmer Folly, you see Ackerman like moving in this new direction in her filmmaking, which is again, moving more towards a kind of like expressionist style, like moving away from the sort of like quote unquote hyper-realism of the earlier periods and the fictional work and then the musical, uh, the, the kind of like, yeah, music and dance driven stuff in the middle. Here you have this sort of expressionist style, which I think is very interesting. I mean, I think that's quite true. It's like Ackerman sort of trying to find new ways to activate these questions of emotion and feeling in the image in a way that's different and in the sound in a way that's different than what she's done uh priorly and so like yeah i think it's worth sort of giving her credit here like she really i i find it i always find it interesting when people who are like later in their careers are trying to do new things rather than kind of like falling back on their on their haunches and i will say too it was a very kind of melancholic experience reading the um reviews like going back and reading the criticism and stuff about this this film because people really talk about it as like her last her last fiction film and it, i don't know it's just very it's, it's very sad to kind of realize that that is where we're going just to be reminded of it you know yeah yeah it's 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 tough in this case because it it really reminds you that like she was not a spent force creatively no, at, at all. all like she was finding new new directions and new approaches and like this is a totally unique film in her film like like several other films where she kind of stakes new ground and it kind of stands uh, on its own she was still doing that uh, all all the way up to this yeah absolutely yeah. 
hundred percent. Well, I have more things I would want to say, but we should probably mm. wrap up here and let ourselves uh, get ready for the next Ackerman episode, which hopefully won't be too long <laughs> until the next uh, podcast. I should I should say here thank 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 you both not only for having me on, but also for doing the Ackerman Year. It's it's such an important podcast, and it's such an amazing project, and and I'm excited to listen to all of it um, when I have time. In a month, uh, yeah. actually, this summer. Um, <laughs> it's summer. <laughs> yes, but thank you both. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, this is amazing, and it's such a great idea for honoring Ackerman's work and for kind of deeply exploring it with diverse voices, oh, too. Nice. So. Thanks, Thank Rebecca. You. Thanks for coming on. And I really recommend people check out Rebecca's work. She is such a smarty, if you couldn't already tell from this podcast. So uh, <laughs> so thank you so much for, for joining us, Rebecca. It was a great conversation. It was so much fun to talk about these movies with you guys, for sure. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Kate. We will be back at an indeterminate time with more Ackerman. Thank you all very much. <laughs> <laughs>